Please turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 10. Job chapter 10, as you're looking, I want to just briefly explain that as we've been working through the book of, of Job, we have the first two chapters which tell us what's really going on, that Satan has been sent to essentially test Job to see if he's really obeying God out of a love for God or simply for what God will give him. When we come to chapter 3, Job has experienced a lot of tragedy, or what we would call tragedy, um, at least tragic in his experience, but certainly part of God's providence for his life. But in chapters, in chapter 3, he speaks of uh, how difficult that is. And then we have his friend Eliphaz in chapters 4 and 5 addressing Job, and then Job uh, responds in chapter 6 and 7 to Eliphaz. And then in chapter 8, we've had uh, Job's friend Bildad speak. And in chapters 9 and 10, we have Job responding to Bildad. And this morning, our text is Job chapter 10. So this brings us to the end this morning. Um, chapter 10 brings us to the end of Job's response to, to Bildad. And the title of the sermon says Job's first reply, because Bildad's going to speak again later, and Job will respond to him again. But this is his first interaction um, with Bildad. So hear God's word from Job chapter 10. He says, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man or your years as a man's years that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty and there is none to deliver out of your hand? Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart. I know that this was your purpose. If I sin, you watch me and do not equip me of my iniquity. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head, for I am filled with disgrace and look on my affliction. Were my head lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion and again work wonders against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your vexation toward me. You bring fresh troops against me. Why did you bring me out from the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone that I may find a little cheer before I go. And I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order, where light is as thick darkness. Job's reply to Bildad is, divided in our Bibles into chapters 9 and 10, and the division comes where it does, presumably because 
The words of chapter 10 appear to be words directed to God in the hearing of his friends in contrast to what we have in chapter 9 where Job is primarily speaking to his friends in the hearing of God. So chapter 9 is is Job addressing his friends. Chapter 10 is prayer to God. And I say primarily that Job is in chapter 9 speaking to his friends because there are a few instances where in chapter 9, He suddenly addresses God as you, such as uh, chapter 9, verse 28, as well as verse 31. But primarily, he is speaking in chapter 9 to his friends about God, and we notice this change that takes place with chapter 10, where Job now begins to directly address God, and uh, so his words take on the form of a prayer. And as we think about the nature and content of Job's prayer, I would have you to note that we do not find Job here praying to be cured of his physical ailments. And I think that's striking. I suggest that if you and I were in Job's shoes, the major concern that we would be voicing to God would be our physical pain, um, our discomfort, our desire to be healed physically. I'm not certain what accounts for what I suggest would be a difference between our prayer and, and Job's prayer, but I think it be a, could be accounted for by means of several explanations. First of all, I think we live in a world and culture that is much more comfort-focused than what Job's culture probably was. And what I mean by that is we're used to having medicines, we're used to having medical procedures that correct problems, that eliminate or greatly reduce pain, we're used to having answers to medical problems that people back in the time of the 1800 BCs didn't have. Remember that Job was living back in the time, we believe, of Abraham. And uh, that was a time in which people didn't have the medical technology as we have today. And uh, they were, in many cases, required to just accept and to endure through whatever physical problems ailed them. For us who are so used to finding relief, it's only natural that we come to expect healing. And so we pray to God for healing help, especially when we don't appear to be getting the relief that we're used to. And yet there's another reason that I think accounts for our tendency to pray for healing, and it's not good. I'm referring to the bad theology of our day that says that God wants us to to, to never suffer, Um. This would mean that being healthy, that being free of physical ailments is God's will. And people say that. They say it's God's will that we never suffer. And what does the Bible say about prayer? It says if we pray according to God's will, he's going to grant our requests. And so if it's God's will for us to be healthy, it would seem that we ought to be praying, and we ought to be praying for healing with the expectation that we are going to be healed every time. Or if it's God's will, and he says he's going to give us whatever we ask, if it's according to his will, then we should expect healing every single time. And if all it takes um, is, is prayer for healing to take place, that would be a mighty good reason to pray for healing. But it's not actually a good reason because the premise behind that kind of prayer is wrong, namely the premise that God doesn't want us to suffer, and uh, that prayer becomes like the waving of a magic wand to get us what we want. Now it's true that it is God's will that you and I one day be set free from all suffering, 
but it's not God's will that we be set free from all suffering in this life. God has willed that we live in a fallen world, which means that for now, it's God's will that we suffer, though not all the time necessarily, and, and uh, he may from time to time grant us relief through healing. But his will that we suffer we must understand, you must understand, it's not because he's cruel, it's not because he's punishing us for sin as though our salvation earned by Christ was somehow incomplete and uh, we somehow have to add to what Christ did. No, the reason for our suffering is because God is glorified through our suffering. And uh, we could just stop there, but we can also understand that God is glorified through it because it serves as a context to highlight his grace. Uh, it can be explained that he uses suffering for loving and wise purposes that have to do with blessing us spiritually. And so ultimately, suffering serves to glorify God as a God of grace. And so it may be that we pray for healing, and it's not God's will um, in that particular instance at that particular time. And yet many still in our day pray for healing out of the expectation that it is God's will. And understandably, they end up confused because there continues to be illness and death. Uh, it is confusing, right, to think that God's will is that we not suffer and yet we suffer. That's confusing, especially if we believe in a sovereign God as we do. How does this all fit together? But we understand that, that we, we pray, but we also pray with submission to God's will, understanding that sometimes he heals, sometimes he doesn't. He does what is best. Another reason for why we might be more inclined to pray for healing than Job was has to do with understanding why Job felt compelled to pray as he did. Uh, we need to, to face the question, well, if he wasn't praying for healing, what was he praying for? And the main concern of Job's prayer really is his relationship with God. Job's main concern is not healing his main concern is why these hardships have come, why he's lost his children, why he's lost his wealth, why he's lost his health, even though he is justified by faith. And not only that, a man who fears God, who is fleeing from sin, who is walking close with God, why are these things coming to him? And his prayers are mostly laments in which he's pleading with God for understanding of what's going on, that God would come against him in wrath. That's how Job perceives it. He feels like God is coming against him in wrath. How does that fit with a justified sinner? And I suggest that if you and I were going through what Job did, we ideally would not have our relationship with God as our primary prayer concern, at least if we're thinking correctly about the gospel. And I would hope that you and I have a greater understanding of the gospel and its relationship to suffering than Job did, just because he was clear back in, in the Old Testament times and did not have the scriptures uh, to the degree, that, to the extent that we do. And so hopefully you are not as inclined to equate suffering with wrath as Job did. The Holy Spirit has given us revelation to what's really going on with Job, chapters 1 and 2 of this book. The Holy Spirit has also given us the, the, the completed scriptures that we know as our Bibles. And uh, what we should know better than Job is that for believers, suffering is not about wrath. And in fact, it's always used as part of God's work of grace in our lives. I've preached many times on how easy it is for us to have 
a wrong perspective that the hardships that have come into our lives must be due to God being angry with us because of our sin. And so we're not totally um, set free from the thinking of Job. And of course, um, you have to understand God is displeased with the sin in our lives. It seems like people don't even want to, to admit that. Yes, God is displeased with the sin in our lives, even as believers. He's not pleased with it, which means he's displeased with it. And he may even chasten us. He may even discipline us for our sins. But yet, as our confession puts it, I love how our confession puts it, his displeasure with us, I'm talking about us as justified sinners trusting in Christ, his displeasure with us is a fatherly displeasure, which means that he may act on that displeasure to discipline us, but discipline, as scripture says, is out of love, the goal being to turn us back to him in repentance. And that scenario is far different than the wrong view that all or even some of our hardships in life as Christians are due to God's wrath coming against us for sin. We'd have to, if that were the case, then we would have to say, well, apparently some of our sin is not forgiven, uh, that some of the displeasure of God toward us now has nothing to do with love and discipline, but is coming against us in, in justice and in wrath, uh, that somehow even now as believers we're having to pay for our sins. That's all a denial of the gospel. No, he's forgiven our sins in Christ. There's also the opposite view, which can be adopted, which is also wrong, that when things suddenly go well in our lives, we think, well, this must be because I've done something good, something that's pleasing to God. And that also is a works-based understanding of life contrary to the gospel. If we as God's saved children believe that God ever hates us when we sin, even though, according to the gospel, we are justified in his sight. If we ever, the thought ever enters into our minds that God hates us, something is not right. You're not thinking correctly. For God to hate us after saving us in Christ would be unjust. And I'm talking about according to the terms of God's own gospel. He's told us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But basically, Job's friends have agreed, and they've, they've tried to hammer it into, into Job's noggin that God has come against him with wrath. And Job, to some degree, has, is taking that in, and, he, and he's wrestling with how this fits with him being a man of faith who fears God. And so his prayer is mostly a wrestling with God over what seems like unjust suffering. And what I'm arguing now is that as long as we hold on to the truth of the gospel as we face suffering, we're not going to have this same prayer concern as Job does. Ideally, we're not going to be concerned as Job was about whether or not we're justified before God. So then that leaves us to pray about other things. If I know I'm right with God in Christ, then I may very well, if I'm in Job's shoes, be praying for healing. And so what I'm saying is that I can envision us as believers who are resting in Christ, who understand justification even more clearly than Job did, that we wouldn't share his focus, which is all about his standing with God. Hopefully you, you're, you're grounded in the gospel to know 
that you are restored to fellowship with God through Christ by faith and that he always, always, always loves you. There's no such thing as God coming against you in wrath. And yet we still struggle. We still struggle with the question, well, then why are we suffering? And we don't enjoy suffering. And so we may very well pray for healing. And yet if we're praying in the right way, we're going to be praying for God's will to be done. And so... In some ways, we're unlike Job. In some ways, we're like Job. We still have a difficult time trying to understand how the suffering in our life has a good purpose. But even if we don't understand how God's love fits into suffering, we are required to submit to God's will. I'd also argue that it's not that Job had no desire for healing. He doesn't really bring it up in his prayer, but it's hard not to imagine Job wanting to be healed on some level. I'm talking about the emphasis of his prayer. He doesn't put physical healing first. He wants the healing of a spiritual relationship with God because he thinks that's what's not going well as he looks at his life, as he looks at his ill health. And Job is, is expecting that if, his, that if spiritual healing takes place, physical healing will come next. And so I think that Job is thinking about his physical health. He's not putting it totally out of his mind. It's just secondary to the main thing. It's not the priority. There are lessons from this that we need to take to heart. It may be that the Lord is using a physical ailment as a tool toward spiritual healing. Perhaps you've drifted from the Lord and a trial of health is leading you to turn toward God and begin to take your spiritual health with him more seriously. Maybe you're realizing, I need to spend greater time in prayer. Maybe I need to spend greater time in God's word. Maybe I need to be a more regular attender at worship and other church activities. I need to be spending more time in fellowship with God's people. And if you are in the middle of this kind of a work of grace in your life, and that's what it is, right? If the Lord is bringing a hardship into your life that's drawing you closer to him, that's grace. And if you are in the middle of such a work of grace in your life and, and begin praying for physical healing, you can see that your desire to be free of this ailment might be actually at odds with the good work that God is doing. And if you and I are thinking correctly, we should recognize and accept the wisdom of God and how he uses suffering to bless us spiritually. So even for us, physical healing shouldn't be our main concern. Perhaps we should be more like Job, in at least that very important thing that we see, this overarching concern with his relationship with God. And it's in the light of his concern for that relationship that he prays to God here in chapter 10. And we can summarize that prayer really with two questions. And in verses 1 through 7, I would summarize what he is getting at there in, the, in, in these verses with the question, the question to God, why are you against me? God, why are you against me? As we come to the end of chapter 9, we find Job wanting an arbiter to come between him and God. He can't see really any other way to handle the situation. He doesn't want to straight out say God is unjust, and yet he doesn't know what else to call it when God comes against him, even though, according to the gospel, as a man of faith, he should be justified. In other words, Job is a man of faith, doesn't know what to do and think when God is coming against him in wrath. Again, that's his perspective. We know it's not 
the case that God is actually coming against him in wrath. But he thinks an arbiter, an, a third party, an objective judge might be able to settle the matter. And yet even uh, that seems far-fetched, if not impossible. And so Job is left feeling rather hopeless. And we see it as he begins chapter 10, we, we see these words, I loathe my life. He's actually said this already two other times, back in chapter 7 and back in chapter, uh, and back in chapter 9. Back in seven, chapter 7, verse 16, he said he so loathes his life that he wishes he could be allowed to die. And in chapter 9, verse 21, he says he loathes his life because he can't make sense of his life in which he never experiences, as he sees it, anything good from God. Now in chapter 10, he states rather bluntly, I loathe my life. And he goes on almost as if to announce, now I'm going to talk about my troubles. I want you all to know I'm going to talk about my troubles. I will give free utterance, he says, to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. And it sounds like he's going to just now spew forth words of complaining, which we know would be wrong. And yet the word complaint Uh, it's translating a Hebrew word here, which can be used at times for prayer. Just simply, it's a word for prayer in which you tell God your troubles. And I think that's what is in mind here. And to speak out of the bitterness of his soul is for him to describe a life that is so troubling, so difficult that it has deeply affected him spiritually. Job, we believe, lived before Ruth and Naomi, and I would suggest that Naomi knew about Job's use of this Hebrew word here, this word bitterness. Remember when she said, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, the word, that's the word here for bitterness, the word used by Job for bitterness. And why did she want that name? She explains, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And she knew what it was to lose to lose loved ones, and to experience extreme hardships. And so Job is here expressing, ready to express to God the deep misery that he feels, the ways in which God, he, he, he believes, has dealt bitterly with him. And he tells his friends the content of his prayer. He feels like God has condemned him, that God has contended against him, that God has oppressed him, that God has despised him. Look at the words that he uses there in verses 2 and 3 to describe what he believes are God's interactions with him as though he is an enemy of God. In the meantime, Job says, the designs or plans of the wicked God favors with success. And so as Job sees it, things are just utterly out of whack. Why are you against me, Job ponders? Why? Things don't make sense. And if you have come to be reconciled with God and to know his favor in Christ forgiving you your sins, then you also know that to lose a sense of God's favor is worse than death. And so that gives us some insight into what's going on here with Job and his struggle. And in verses 4 through 7, he explains why it makes no sense that, that God would be against him. Job asks rhetorically, if God is like man, does God have eyes like men? And think about it, all we can see is the exterior of people. We can't see into people's hearts. Is that how God sees? Is he limited to only seeing what happens moment by moment as it takes place? Does God have a limited lifespan? Does God have a difficult time figuring out when people commit sin? 
And Job knows the answer. He knows that God is not a man. He knows that God is not limited like men in these ways. But God is the eternal and omniscient creator, knows all things past, present, and future. He sees into people's hearts. Job knows that if he has committed sin, it's not going to be difficult for God to figure out what is going on. I believe that Job here, by the language he uses, is having us think about how if God was limited and like a mere man, that he would, like us, not always be able to judge people's guilt or innocence properly. If you think about in our earthly lives, in the earthly realm, it happens all the time that people get wrongly accused of crimes, and it's because of the limits of man's abilities to know what's going on. Police, police detectives are not always able to figure out who committed a particular crime. It's because they can't see into people's hearts, and they have only limited time to do their investigations. The detective himself may pass away before he can solve the, the crime, or the person who committed the crime may die before uh, it's determined that he's guilty before a court, court of law. And so police detectives can become desperate and in the process do shoddy work. They want results so badly that sometimes justice gets in the way. Well, Job brings this up to say that God is not like man. God knows Job's heart and the hearts of all men. And what is happening to Job would make sense, you see, if God was limited in his knowledge. Maybe God has accidentally falsely accused him. But Job knows better. He says to God, you know that I am not guilty. And he adds, there is none to deliver out of your hand. Job is utterly convinced of his innocence. Now, it's important to understand he's not here claiming to be sinless. He's claiming to be a justified sinner who fears God, who is fleeing from his sin, and all by grace through faith. He is in this way claiming to be innocent of sin that would account for God coming against him in wrath or discipline. From that point of view, he knows he doesn't deserve what's happening to him. And we know he's correct based on what we know from chapters 1 and 2 of what took place in heaven. God allowed Satan to test Job in order to prove his faithfulness. So God knows all about Job, and Job knows that God knows. He also knows that there is nothing that he can do about what is happening. God has determined that Job will suffer, and so Job will suffer. He can't change that, but he does ask God why he contends against him. He longs for God to explain himself because he doesn't understand what's happening. It doesn't make sense to him. And in the rest of Chapter 10 and verses 8 through 22, Job takes a step back to contemplate the broader picture of what is our purpose, what is his purpose in life as far as God is concerned. Why has God created Job? Why has he created us? Job wants to know the purpose that God has for him. Why was he allowed to be born? And what's the purpose of giving a person life when it amounts to suffering and when the person doesn't even want to live anymore? And so the main question really in this section of verses 8 through 22 is, why did you create me? Why did you create me? And Job begins with this very vivid description of God's creation of man. Uh, we certainly um, think of Genesis and the account there as, uh, as God is pictured as a craftsman making Job's body out of the dust of the ground. He says, your hands fashioned and made me. Remember that you have made me like clay. And he talks about being 
possibly return back to the dust. That certainly brings to mind Genesis. And as Job thinks of his body being formed in the womb, what comes to mind is the process of making cheese and how milk begins to curdle and to take form. Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? And then the figure changes to God being like a tailor who makes us clothes and dresses us. You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. There's no question that Job understands God is his creator And what troubles Job, though, is that God has gone through all of this effort to make him, and now he's destroying him. We know even more clearly than Job probably did that we've been made in God's image, the highest of all earthly creatures, a unique creature with whom God has chosen to have fellowship. Why would God choose to destroy his own creation, especially a believer, someone that has been drawn into God's fellowship? So clearly Job understands something of the unique position of man in relationship with God. He says to God, you you granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. And I don't believe that Job has in mind here only physical life and, and God's care of his physical body, though that's certainly part of it. But the word here for steadfast love is the word hesed, which refers to God's special covenant love for his people for sinful people that he draws into fellowship with himself. The recipients of this kessed love are recipients of God's promise of salvation in Christ. And so the life, I believe, that Job is talking about is the life of fellowship with God. He's talking about spiritual life. Notice that word that Job uses describing God's care that goes beyond just his physical body. He says, your care has preserved my spirit. And that word care is basically a military term that refers to the care of troops, refers to looking after them, meeting their needs, making sure that all of the people under uh, a person's custody have everything they need. And added on top of that word care is the word preservation, which in the Hebrew means to keep, to watch, to preserve. It refers, again, in a military context to a watchman keeping guard over troops, or in another context to a shepherd watching and guarding his sheep. Job says that God's care has meant a watching over his spirit. And that word spirit basically means breath. It can refer simply to breathing, and so Job could be saying, God, you preserved my every breath. You, uh, you know, I'm alive simply because you have sustained me every moment of my life. But I believe that Job is referring to himself from a spiritual point of view. He's already talked about his physical body, and so I'm taking the reference to his spirit in verse 12 as a reference to the fact that in his creation he was given not only a body but also a spirit. And it's because he has a spirit that he can know and appreciate God's steadfast love, that kessed love, bringing him into fellowship with him. And so Job's point, again, to look at the, the main point, the, the broad picture here, is knowing that all that God has done to create him, and not only that, but to care for him, it's perplexing why God would now seek to destroy him. And uh, Job knows that God has his reasons for these things, But God hasn't revealed them to him. He says, yet these things you hid in your heart, I know that this was your purpose. Literally, I know that this is or was with you. Um, 
all of the things that are happening to Job are with God. It's kind of a unique expression, with God, in the sense that they are not happening apart from God. God knows all about them. Job knows that nothing is escaping God's control. And the translators see in this expression of these hidden things being with God, that though they are hidden from us, there is a purpose for them. God knows what's going on, and there's a purpose that he's working out. The things that God has hidden in his heart would be the reasons, the attitudes, the goals behind all that he is doing. I'm reminded of Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, which says that there are secret things that belong to the Lord. And those are in contrast to the things that are revealed to us. And as Job considers what is going on in his life, he knows that the Lord has a purpose, but he can't figure out what that purpose is. And in verses 14 through 17, he describes why what is going on doesn't make sense. It seems that no matter what happens, God is coming against him as an enemy rather than a loving Savior. So notice verses 14 through 15a. If Job sins, he says God is watching him, which is actually the, that word watching is the same Hebrew word translated as preserve in verse 12, but now taking on a negative nuance. Now rather than watching over him to protect him and to bless him, God is watching over him to punish him. Job's perspective is that God will not acquit him of his iniquity. To acquit him would be to forgive him, to justify him. And Job knows that if God holds our sins against us, doesn't acquit us of our sins, we are in trouble. And so he says, woe is me. That's appropriate. Woe is me if I am to stand before God in my sins. But what if Job is not actually guilty of sin in this case? He explains that it's not going to change anything 15b, if I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head, for I am filled with disgrace and look on my affliction. Job is describing how he's been humbled. In the Old Testament, you lift up your head when you are joyful, when you are confident that you are under the Lord's favor, but Job doesn't know where he stands with God. Job is not confident of God's favor. He feels shame because everything that's happening to him Tells him he's a a terrible sinner deserving God's wrath, and so his head is bowed down. Verses 16 and 17 tell us how discouraged he is. He is convinced that God has determined that he not ever lift up his head. He feels like God is a lion and he is the prey, and that God is there and he's just ready and eager to just push him down whenever he might begin to think that there is hope. Three things, he says, God does to keep him discouraged. The first part of 17, you renew your witnesses against me. Every disaster, every struggle given to Job is a witness that, as Job sees it, that God is displeased with him. Second, he increases, he says, you increase your vexation toward me. The anger of God seems to be only building over time. And then third, you bring fresh troops against me. New disasters, new discouragements. Some have thought that these new troops are even Job's friends who every time they come and speak to him, all they do is just push him down even further into discouragement. And the resulting hopelessness is predictable. It's not new to Job's experience. 
In verses 18 through 22, he asks, Why, God, did you create me? Why did you see to it that I was born? Why did you not let me die? Why do you continue to come against me? He would prefer that God would just leave him alone. He says, just allow me a little cheer before my life ends. And since Job is convinced that he must be under the wrath of God, he figures that after death, all he's going to experience is darkness and gloom. Really, he describes here life without God. He describes life in hell. And he knows that a sinner dying without being reconciled to God only brings a life, uh, not even a life, it's death, right? But an existence that's worse than anything here on earth. He knows that in hell there is no good thing, while life on earth involves a mixture of good and bad. Most of the time, as far as Job is concerned, lately in his life there's been nothing but bad. But God, if you'd please just back off, I might be able to experience a little bit of good before I die and go to hell. That's his perspective. As we conclude, I would direct you back to the two main questions that Job asks here. Why are you against me? Why did you create me? God, is there a purpose in creating me only to destroy me? God, is there a purpose in giving me life? And then covenant love, this kessed love, this steadfast love, caring for even my spirit only to cast me off in the end and destroy me in judgment. And notice how clearly Job understands the seriousness of sin, the need to be right with God. He's actually got a lot of things right. He knows that sin makes us guilty and worthy of judgment, even of, uh, of uh, being cast into hell for all eternity. The wages of sin is death. He knows that the only hope we have is for God to acquit us of our iniquity. Only, our only hope for eternal life, a life that doesn't end in hell, is for God to forgive us of our sins and to declare us to be innocent. And it's Jesus who has made it possible for us to be acquitted of our sins. And he acquits us on the basis of his death on the cross, which was given as a payment for our sins. When you think of Christ on the cross, know that he was there bearing the curse of your sins, suffering the punishment for sin that should have been yours. And you can know that you are forgiven and acquitted of your sins if you by faith receive Christ's saving work on your behalf. And Job understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't understand. He didn't know Jesus, but he understood the gospel of the Messiah, the coming Messiah, that as sinful and worthy of condemnation we are for our sins, that God, through his Messiah, provides a way for us to be acquitted. And Job's confusion lay in the fact that on the one hand, he's a man of faith who knows the promises of God to bless sinners, to forgive sinners in the way of faith in the coming Messiah, and yet He's a sinner experiencing the wrath of God. How do these things fit? And Job's dilemma is not unique to him. It continues to happen that people, including you and me, sometimes don't know how to reconcile God's word with our experiences when they seem contradictory. This is when we need to remember that distinction of Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, that that between the secret things of God and the things that he has revealed in his word. The things that he has revealed in his word, we are told, belong to us. God has spoken to us and he has told us what he wants us to know of his will in his word. And so that word is to be studied and it's to be followed because God is true, because he's faithful, because 
his revealed word is absolute truth around which you can build your lives. And yet the secret things are to be left alone. God says they belong to him. Which means he doesn't want us concerning ourselves with trying to figure out the things that he hasn't revealed. Which means practically speaking that when what we know in God's word seems to be contradicted by what is going on in our lives, we have to let God's word guide us. We have to let the things that belong to us guide us. We must not let our feelings, uh, we must let our feelings be guided by God's word and not vice versa. So what should Job have done? And what should you do when you feel like God is against you on the basis of what is going on in your life, in lives on the basis of your experiences. What should you do? Well, you must lay hold of the gospel as it is revealed in God's word. He has promised if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You must lay hold of the truth. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You must not doubt the reality laid out toward the end of of Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We are told that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, and that even suffering is made to serve our, our good and God's glory. And so God's word is clear. We're not saved because we feel saved. But we're saved because we are looking to Jesus Christ as our only hope for acquittal. Because he alone has paid for our sins. And so don't lose sight of that steadfast love of God. That covenant love according to which he has promised a savior to all who want forgiveness of their sins. That promise originally given to Adam and Eve in a very seminal form and repeated later to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to God's people ever since, it has never changed, it has never faltered, it has never failed, and it has remained the steadfast hope of God's people in all ages. And so I want to tell Job, and maybe you might want to tell him something similar. Job, you are correct in that you don't understand God's suffering the purpose of it in your life. You think that the only purpose can be judgment. But such judgment, as you rightly recognize, contradicts your salvation. You don't have to understand the purpose of of what God is doing, of what is happening in in your life. You don't have to understand uh, what's going on behind the scenes. Think about what you do know. God has granted you, as you have said yourself, life and steadfast love and care that has preserved your spirit. And that steadfast love will never change. That's the promise of the covenant. That's the promise of the gospel. Don't focus on what you don't know. Focus on what you do know. So why are you against me? Job asks. The gospel says, no, that cannot be. It cannot be that God would be against someone upon whom he has set his steadfast love. Someone who by faith is resting in the Messiah. That cannot be. Why did you create me? God created us for his glory. For a good purpose in his plan. And having received your 
God's love in the gospel. Why did he create you? For your good. So why? For God's glory and for your good. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you, Father, for what you have revealed to us. That is clearly taught in your word. And Father, may we put that uh, ever before our minds as we experience things that seem contradictory to it. May we, Lord, interpret our experiences through the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name.